0: you we were listening to the children's sermon, we're going to talk about angels this Advent season. You know, when you, when you go through, uh, I guess, a Christmas series, there's only so many texts you can use. Mark doesn't really talk about it. John really never talks about the birth. He goes back before it. And it's really just the Luke and Matthew accounts that we have that give us uh, kind of what we, we call our Christmas Type of our nativity texts. So uh, as we look at these, we're going to do it a little bit different this time. We're going to look into the text. We'll hit a little bit at the beginning and uh, quite a bit at the end. But what we're going to look at is more at angels. And on your bulletin and on the screen is uh, the artist's rendition from those Kingstone uh, graphic novel Bibles that we've been having given out to kids. and. Um, there's actually a couple adults that use them, too. I use them just to kind of get a picture. I mean, this is just somebody's idea. We don't know. Did Gabriel look like this? I don't know. He's pretty imposing, uh, isn't he? This is actually from the uh, appearing to the shepherds, uh, which we'll hit in a couple weeks. But So we're really looking at four visits of angels. Mainly there are four. There's this one where Zachariah gets the visit from Gabriel um, in the temple. Uh, Mary obviously has Gabriel come to her to tell her about the child that's going to become miraculously in her. Uh, Joseph gets an angel in a dream and then you get this one that's pictured where the angel originally uh, uh, first is one angel and then eventually a whole bunch of angels come to the shepherds and tell them about the Savior being born in uh, Bethlehem. So as we look at these, that's uh that's kinda what we're gonna in fact today we're gonna do and this is kind of a big word, but it's you probably can figure out what it is, but we're gonna do a little angelology. Didn't know you get to do that, do you? Um Theology is obviously study of God an understanding of God. Angelology would be the study of angels. And we're doing a little bit of each week kinda looking at what we what we should l- what does the Bible really say? Most of the stuff we're gonna get today is from the old testament to kinda give us a a pre-advent, pre-first-coming view of these beings that show up. So starting in verse 5, we're just going to work through about half of this, and then we'll hit the rest of it toward the end. In the days of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord but they had no child because of Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. While well, now he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zachariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. seems to be one of the, or maybe the main emotion that you see when somebody sees an angel, which makes you think that they must be someone imposing. Uh, it may be the fact that there wasn't anybody there, and now there is. That could be enough to make you fearful. Uh, but it seems like there's more than that, and we'll look into that. But one of the verses I think we always need to kind of look at uh, uh, when we look at this text is this fact that Elizabeth and Zechariah We're righteous and blameless before the Lord. Um, That's interesting, isn't it? Righteous and blameless. Now, this is pre-crucifixion. This is uh, pre-sacrifice of Jesus for the world, but yet they were seen as right. And the text tells us that, right? Sometimes we miss the Old Testament's view of what it meant to be a true follower of Yahweh. We get this idea that it's just based on our uh, performance, Uh, and then when Jesus came, it's all about grace. It is always about grace, and I think we see it here. How were they righteous before God? Um, We see Zechariah, and we'll talk about that after we read that part of the text. Um, I don't know if we'd call it a sin, but it's certainly disobedient, right, when he questions the angel, which we'll read about in a little bit. Was that the first time he sinned, and he was blameless before that? Is that what this text is trying to do? Is that what the Jews of the... Old Testament were held to a standard of perfection. You know, the New Testament teaches that the Torah of Moses offers righteousness, the teaching of Moses, the, the books of Moses. Now, to be considered righteous before God, what did they have to do? Well, they had to love God. If you We went through the book of Deut- Deuteronomy in our uh, Sunday morning Bible study, and I think the, the phrase love God is what those people were supposed to do. If you remember, Deuteronomy is this big, sermon pretty much at the right before they're going into the promised land and Moses gives this to the people and it's obviously a lot of it is from God it's information from God, it surmises a lot of the other books but it's it's really, and the love to tell they're told to love God 31 times in Deuteronomy it's the key, it's always the key you know, remember when Jesus was asking Matthew 22 you know um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then how do you sum up the law and the prophets? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, my mind, and strength. Do you want to guess where that came from? That came from Deuteronomy. The second one actually comes from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's almost like Jesus knew the Old Testament really well. It's no different, folks. It's a different system because Christ has not died. But what do they have? They have to love God and then fellow man. Verse 2 greatest commandments, isn't that? That's throughout both Testaments. Trust God, because loving Him implies trusting Him, you know, faith, and believe His Word. You know, it's always been a textual faith, right? Write this down. As far as we know, who was the first writer? If you get, I think I should have my, my uh, trusty uh, animated Bible up here, because I have a really good, well, you remember the Charlton Heston movie, right? The Cecil B. DeMille, Ten Commandments, you know, he's up on the mountain. Who writes the Ten Commandments? You know, and that Jewish thought, if you can look back at that, and that's still today, and they commemorate that at different festivals, that's the beginning of the text. And then he then the, the, the thought is Moses gets the rest of that on Sinai, Genesis, and then exodus, the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Judah. De- that's where the Torah comes from. But it starts from the hand of God. Always a textual thing. This is my word. Follow it. So this is what they were supposed to do. So... How do you give evidence for love? Isn't that always the important thing that's true in the New Testament? It's true in the Old Testament. How does that show that they trust and they observe all the rules? It's just how you live your life. You know, John the Baptist, who is the one that Gabriel's going to talk about here in a little bit, um, one of his best lines in Matthew 3 is, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Isn't that a cool line? How am I supposed to live or produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Live your life so it looks like you've repented and it looks like God, you're trusting in God and you're following him and that you accepted the grace. Because if you don't, how do we know it's really real? How do you know it's really real? How do you know it really is, are saved by the blood of the Lamb, as they say? Well, I think it really comes down to who do you want to serve? What is your goal in life? What is the main thing? And even maybe in a negative sense, what do you do when you sin? Well, what did they do when they sin? Well, they had these repentance sacrifices, blood sacrifices, sin offerings were in the law because they knew that God knew that they were not going to be able to keep it perfectly. There was always, that's why it becomes grace. I mean, isn't that interesting? You know, take an unspotted lamb and bring it before the priests and have it killed on the altar as a testament to your repentance now could you just go through the motions many people do i know none of you would do that today right you're not here to go through the motions you're here to worship right some people do that we just go to get our point and i'll give you as many points as you want but at the end of the day points aren't what you need you need grace so when they fell short of full obedience the same thing we do it's a different system you know thank god we don't have to do the sacrifices we point Jesus, so the Levitical sacrifices points to Jesus. At. That's what we have to remember. And Zechariah and Elizabeth f- faithfully looked to God's future, final sacrifice. They were looking for something, but they were blameless before God because their heart was a heart of love, and they've accepted the grace. Now I realize the cross makes that come in much clearer. It clarifies it, makes it more precise. But it's not like these people didn't know it. Um, I mean, just look at the characters in the Bible. I mean, you know the term royal screw-up comes from David? He did. But he still had a heart after God. What did he do when he sinned greatly? Yeah, read Psalm 51. You know, that's, this was always there, folks. But the cross is what we ultimate, they were looking forward, we look backward. And you see this in Hebrews 10, which is a book about, trying to show us how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. We don't have to kill him again. Uh, one time. Every priest stands daily at his service. And this was written when the temple was still standing. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which could never take away sins. Not permanently. You had to keep doing it. You had to keep going back. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So every time a pigeon was killed, every time a ram was killed, every time a bull was killed for sacrifice, it points to Jesus. Did they know that? Probably not, but they started to figure out pretty good, pretty, pretty soon. And we always get this during Easter time. The Passover lamb is such a a great physical metaphor for what Jesus was going to do ultimately. Where, you know, remember the Passover was, the idea was called that because the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts and the angel of death passes over. I mean, if that doesn't show you, you know, the New Testament and the cross of Christ, I mean, I don't know what, it's almost like God knew what he was doing. It all came that way. So then the angel appears here. The angel appears to this guy who's blameless before the Lord. And it's cool because we know it doesn't mean he's perfect and he knows everything. He's kind of probably a little upset that this is getting, this is the only time he probably did this his whole life. He's probably like, oh, really? Really? First time I get it, and then this guy has to show up. You know, who knows what he was thinking? We don't know. But it, the, the angel appears to Zechariah. Zechariah could see him, and I don't know if you think about this stuff. It's kind of a metaphysical question. It's beyond the physical. It's spiritual. It's deep. It's emotional. It's soul thing. But I always wonder uh, whether he was already there or he just showed up. Show of hands. No, we don't have to do that. But should we vote? <laughs> I don't think it really matters, but ultimately aren't angels they're spiritual beings, right? They don't have physical form. Um, they can take on form that we can see. Now, whether or not that is that he just got there, I mean, he can see him. That there's, there's his eyes can see. And maybe something's happened with Zachariah's eyes. I don't know that he could see Gabriel. The text doesn't really say. It's just geeky guys like me that try to figure this out and then step back and think, well, probably doesn't matter. But it's kind of fun to think about because there's such a uh, – and you don't want to get too, you know, but uh, – You think about most angels, there's supposed to be a bunch of them if Revelation uh, is right, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Uh, You think we've encountered them and didn't see them? I think it's quite possible. Uh, But we're never supposed to really dive into that too deeply. Uh, If God wants you to see one, he'll he'll figure that out for you. And I don't think it happens that often. This is kind of a special time. God's becoming flesh and dwelling among us. It's probably a good time to have maybe have some angels show up. So these beings, and this is kind of your angelology portion of the sermon, um, they're clearly designated by the English word angel. It's just one of those transliterated where we just take a Greek word and just say the same thing again. Uh but in biblical Hebrew, it's not very exact, exactly what these beings are. And we see this in the text, and we're going to look at some of these. I think it helps us because one of the things this will hopefully help you with is there's a lot of misinformation about angels, especially during Christmas. Now, I'm going to preempt this because I don't want anybody getting mad at me. Well, actually, I really don't care if it's for the right reasons. But we're going to kind of smack It's a Wonderful Life in a couple weeks. His angelology in that was not very good, but will it's still a, a really fun movie. I don't mean that. Uh, but the word in Hebrew is malach, and it means messenger, uh, and it's applied sometimes to human agents. You see this in Genesis 32. Jacob sends messengers before him to Esau. His brother, he's not sending angels there. You have to go by context. Sometimes it's used figuratively. In Psalm 104, he makes his messengers winds and his ministers flaming fire. I don't think he's saying the angels are turning in to wind and fire. If you have earth, you get some really good songs, right? Earth, wind, and fire. It would be really good if it was September. That would have worked, but it's November, so we won't do that. Uh, Now, the term in Greek Bible is angelos, and that's where we get our term angel. It has the same variety of meanings. Um, but elsewhere, we get a different term. We don't use this one, Mitch. Elohim is, just the, the, is the usually used for God. Uh, it's not Yahweh. It's more of a generic term, but it's sometimes used for Yahweh. But you get ben Elohim, which is sons of God. This you see a lot in the Bible. We miss this sometimes. Um, it's divine beings, for the most part, in context. You see this back in Genesis 6, which is a really Uh, eclectic text but the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and then you get this interesting encounter in Job Job Job's always a good one if I was doing a whole series on angels I think Job would be my text for a while now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them we usually don't think of Satan that way do we you think of Satan coming into God's waiting room periodically you know, saying, you know, I'm here to see Yahweh. I've got a 115. Um, and then, you know, Gabriel comes out and said, well, you know, it's kind of busy with the one. It's going to be like two. Is that okay? You know, just like the doctor. And I wonder if they took Satan in from that waiting room and put him in that little waiting room that you put you in when you go. You always have two waiting rooms. you get got the big waiting room where you're in there waiting to get to the little waiting room so you can wait longer for the doctor. But I don't know if God does that to you or not. But it, but it's kind of interesting. We don't think of it this way, do we? Um, and maybe it's got some sort of poetic metaphor here, but who's in charge here? You know, God's in charge. We, we, you know, that's out there movies. You know, Satan is not just the anti-God. Satan is what we call a fallen angel. He has no power over God. I mean, he's coming here to ask if he can do stuff. Does Yahweh ask him if he can? No. It's not. That's called dualism. It's a. It's not Christianity, folks. I'm not saying these evil, malevolent beings don't have power, but only as God allows. And and if you read the rest of Job 2, 1 and 2, it's an interesting read. And yes, you read it and text me and then I'll give you a point if you want. Uh, They're also known as ketoshim, which means holy beings. Uh, You see this in there. So why do I say this? Well, because you can't just go for the word Malak and find all the angel examples. You have to go to, you know, you have to look at these different words. And you see this in Psalm 89. Who is like the Lord? And L-O-R-D capitalizes Yahweh. A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the Holy Ones and awesome above all who are around him. It was always the Jewish and Hebrew view that these divine beings were here and Yahweh is here. We're going to see the main text of that and you'll know it because it was the first, that's the first thing that God wrote on the tab. We'll see that in a minute in Deuteronomy. And then Job 5, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? That's always been the problem. That's why the first commandment is what it is in the Ten Commandments, trying to turn to something other than God. Uh, And that gets turned into, you know, you will have no other gods before me. And then once in a while, he's just simply called man. We see this at the tomb. In Luke, while they were perplexed about this, this is the woman they're going to do the spice thing, you know, after Jesus' resurrection. They don't know he's resurrected yet. They see the stone rolled away. They go, and then they see these two men, but they're not just two men. They're t- two men stood by in dazzling apparel. You always see that. They always seem to kind of glow. Uh, I saw a history channel, uh, which usually does pretty good, but they were saying that maybe they were radioactive. I guess maybe. I don't know. I don't get that from the text, but, you know, whatever. Whatever toot your horn, I guess. Um, and a further complication is due to the fact that the Bible doesn't always distinguish between God and his messenger. It's like they're so connected, and we're going to look at that when we look at the end of this text. How does that work? You see the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. We know this text. Um, this is where when Moses goes up. He's just chasing a sheep or whatever, and then there's the burning bush, and Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. Come over here. And at first, it, the Lord appears to Moses, but then it's the angel of the Lord that tells him to do this, it says. And then the rest of the time, he's just talking to the deity, talking to Yahweh, which we get that Yahweh, just to give you a little bit of an interesting way. You, you, we say Yahweh a lot. We have a couple songs that say that. That's the Hebrew word for God, the the, the, the main God, the God, Yahweh, that we would say is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When Remember when Moses was kind of sparring back and forth verbally with God about, you know, I'm, I've, you know, I've kind of been to Egypt. They don't really like me there. Um, and finally, he says, and remember e- Egypt, he grew up, Moses grew up in Egypt where there were multiple gods, polytheistic, a god for everything. And when he says, he's like, okay, I'll do this, but who do I say is sending me? What's he saying What's your name? And you probably know what he says, and it gets translated different ways. Usually it's I am that I am. Um, but it's a little bit of an inflection on the Hebrew word for existence, which I thought was really cool. And that's where we get the term Yahweh. Or if you use different ways, you know, the yah becomes Jah, and the way becomes va, and you get Jehovah. It's the same thing. It's just how you're pronouncing it. Uh, but that's it. You know, I am who I am. I will be who I will be, and I've always been who I've always been. It's a word that's really deep in existence. And if you read the Hebrew text, and we did that when I was at seminary, when you get to Yahweh out of reverence for the name, you don't say it. You say Adonai, which is Lord. And you get really good at it after a while. Um, If you ever get a Jewish text, if it's an Orthodox Jew or a conservative Jew, they won't put God in it. It'll be G-D, It's their way of doing the same thing. It's just out of reverence for God. You don't say the divine name. But back to here, it's the the angel of the Lord, and Yahweh, there's never like, you know, the angel of the Lord went out and said this to the people, and then Yahweh came back and said, that was wrong. You messed that up. You know, we're not going to get that here with Gabriel. We're not going to, we don't ever, it's always right. He uses them as his message. You get that with Gideon. Gideon speaks sometimes with God and sometimes with the angel of the Lord. Um. And then we get to Deuteronomy 32, which implies that the fate of nations are determined by battles with these celestial ministers to whom they have been assigned. This is kind of interesting. When the Most High, that's another way of saying Yahweh, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, which we already know is some sort of divine being. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. So Yahweh is the God of the Israelites. And just to look at it, it seems like these other lesser beings, and some of them fallen, become kind of the deities of these pagan nations. And you see that that's the thought process. And that will help you with a lot of things if you think that way, because that's the way they thought. So the worship of any of these other divine beings, holy or unholy, is strictly forbidden. And that now we're back to the first thing that Yahweh wrote. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, when we look at that in our day and age, when we look it through in our, our, our way of looking at the New Testament, we think, well, there are no other gods. Well, in, in one way, yes. But if you look at little g, divine beings, there are, right? It's not there's only one true God, only one always existing God, but there are other beings there. That's why he says that. Don't have other gods. Don't put one of these above me because they're not me. It's not that I'm a little bit better than they are. It's that I created them. I'm sovereign over them. Why does God allow these other fallen angels, however you want to call it, evil spirits, do what they do? I don't know, but he does. (laughs) We see it. I mean, what what was one of Jesus' main miracles? What did he do? He cast out what? Cast out demons. They're real. That's the thing we have to look at. Most of the time we don't see them any more than we see angels. But we can see their effects, right? Remember our Second Corinthians 11, or 10 passage, you know? We do not fight w- the spiritual war like the world does, but we fight against every idea, every notion, every theology, every doctrine set up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. That's how they get us. It's not probably appearing to you in your room and saying, you know, you're supposed to do something bad. It's that little thought. Did God really say? If you really love them, you'll do this, which is against God's word. They won't tell you that. Always twisting it just a little bit. That's what gets us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And that's what these other other Canaanite, Hittite, Amalekite, every other ite, um, did this a lot. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why is he so stern about this? Because this is the way everybody else did it. You go into the Holy of Holies, and there's no statue of Yahweh. Because he can't be put in some sort of carved item. So this is the first commandment. This is the way, but the way they looked at it in Hebrew thought, this angelology we're looking at, is these other beings are there, and they have power. And how that works, I don't think it really tells us, other than what we've seen. Uh, and we don't want to get goofy about this if the Bible doesn't reveal it. And even the holy angels aren't supposed to be worshipped. Then I fell down at his feet. This is John in, toward the end of the book of Revelation. His feet to worship the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, big G, (laughs) worship Yahweh, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And you get this in this doctrine, this theology from Paul, the great Pharisee who becomes an apostle. You see this in 1 Corinthians 10. What do I imply then? He's talking about food sacrifice to idols. The food offered to idols is anything Or is an idol anything? Is there anything real there? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and to not God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a demon behind the idol. Maybe it does. The idea is if you don't worship Yahweh, that's your only alternative. You're either for me or against me, Jesus says that. So even though people might not even know it. That's what they're doing. And I read a book, uh, The Unseen Realm. uh, Paul Meyer, I think is the guy. And I don't know if I'm completely convinced of this, but it's really kind of interesting. Did you ever think about when Jesus is casting out a demon, how it got there in the first place? I mean, you know, we can still do the meet and eat again if people want to if you want to meet and then we'll eat. Uh, But, you know, you're walking to wherever we go, and all of a sudden, oh, no, demon. What this book, and he used a lot of biblical evidence, and it is somewhat compelling, and it may be right, and it's just something to think about, that every one of these people who had that high of influence from a non-Yahweh divine being was an idol worshiper. That that's what got it started. It's certainly, biblically, you're not going to get this just by, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is, you know, what, what allows an evil spirit to have influence over somebody? I would think that would be sin. But the greatest sin is what we just looked at, loving something else more than God, worshiping something else other than God. So you can think about that. It definitely didn't just happen. We don't get the backstory. I thought if, uh, if you ever wanted to write some good novels, it'd be interesting to have somebody just take some, uh, f- it be fiction, but what about this, you know, Legion, you the, the guy that had an, in the Gesenoret that had Legion in him? I wonder what his life was before that. It'd be cool to have somebody write that, you know, and just think about what that might have been like. But go ahead and put idol worship in there. It really works good, biblically, I think. And then Psalm 89, the goodness of God is praised by the assembly of the holy ones because the psalmist emphasizes he is incomparably greater than they are, and they stand in awe of him, whether they worship him or they fight against him. And as I said in Job, the divine beings appear before God as a body. They, they, Maybe they're just reporting on their performance, coming back to him and obtaining new fresh orders, or one of them... One of them is Satan, who carries out his functions under God's directions. we forget that that's the way it works. Anything that happens in this life is either caused by Yahweh or allowed by Yahweh. Otherwise, if that's not true, he's not sovereign, right? And people try to get him off the hook by saying, well, it wasn't allowed by him, and he's never asked to be off the hook. It seems like God can handle it. And then finally, as we kind of go back into our text here and finish up, Israel has a minister, a divine angel, and his name is Michael. We see this in Daniel 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side. And this is Gabriel talking uh, against these except Michael, your prince. Michael is always seen as this protector of Israel. And it looks like to me that Gabriel seems to maybe be the minister or angel of all the followers of Yahweh in the new covenant because he seems to show up a lot when this new covenant is going. So let's finish up our text for today. Verse 13. So he's afraid, but the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will receive at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people, or for the Lord, a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife has advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news and behold you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which we will will be fulfilled in their time Now, the people were waiting for Zachariah and they wondered about his delay in the temple and when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute and when his time of service was ended he went to his home and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among my people. So verse 13, God has heard your prayer. So it's key to understand this part of the fulfillment and appearance of Gabriel that was a direct answer to prayer. It kind of shows you the power of prayer it looks like our prayers can actually get angels moving. I don't think we need to ask for that. Did it, did Zachariah say, you know, send an angel because we want a kid? No. Um, but the angel came to tell him that Yahweh has heard your prayer. Now, that idiom usually means I've heard and I'm going to answer. Uh, but think about another thing, another metaphor. It's in Revelation 8. I love this metaphor about prayer. It, it, it probably means more to people who've been in a temple that has incense and all that. But Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. You ever think about <coughs> when you pray <coughs> excuse me, something, it, it goes up and gets to God? I think those prayers that are really God-honoring get there, and then he's going to do what he wants with them. He's gonna take them on and figure them out. That's just such a neat metaphor that it's a direct access to God. We don't have to go through somebody else to do this. You can just pray. And God it just you know, it's, it's metaphoric. I think you can hear it without the smoke. But it's that's it's it, it makes sense if <coughs> if you're looking at the temple. <coughs> excuse me, as a you know, an ancient Jew, the temple was something they obviously accessed God with. So This is an answer to prayer, which I think helps us with verse 20, the punishment for lack of belief, because it's really the punishment for praying and then having it answered and not accepting it. Be careful what you pray for, right? The power of prayer. How much power was directly from Gabriel here and how much from God? Have you ever thought about that? If you're in a life group, you'll get to. (laughs) It's part of the questions. Uh, I mean, did Gabriel go there? Did he have some free will direction to punish as he sees fit? I mean, do you ever thought about? I mean, I have. Was it was it like Gabriel standing here and he said, "Hi, you got this is going to be cool." And he gives this good kind of song almost and this thing, this is going to this kid's going to be doing all this great stuff and he's going to have the Holy Spirit and and he's going to pave the way for the Messiah and all this kind of stuff. And then Zechariah comes back and says, "Are you sure?" <laughs> Does Gabriel go, "Minute. What do I do? Shut him up for nine months. All right. You all nine, I Gabriel, you know, I am mean, know, Or was it just he just had the latitude? I don't know. Um, I think I kind of lead toward B. And he gets back up there and Yahweh goes, that was a good one. Good job. <laughs> I don't know how much latitude they have. He's, he's a holy angel, so he doesn't sin, so he's going to do it right. Um I think they probably had that latitude, but I guess it doesn't make it. But something, it's fun to talk about. Because we turn these angels into these two-dimensional characters that are just like, you know, singograms where they just come and tell you something. It's like it they're, they're actually beings that have intelligence and worth and power. So I think we need to look at it that way. Regardless, Zachariah wasn't being totally obedient here, was he? Did you say this was sinful? I think it qualifies. Was he still blameless before the Lord? That's why we got to get that blameless stuff right. Blameless before the Lord is because of the Lord, not because of you. <laughs> if it's because of you, it's not grace. That works. Blameless before the Lord, righteous before God is about us accepting the grace through faith. And that's true in both Testaments. Do you think he confessed his sin after this? to Yahweh, I would, I would go to the mat for that. I'm sure he did. He probably sacrificed the next day. <laughs> I sinned against you and my family. But look at that. Did the punishment go away when he did that? No, it stayed for the same time. And I'm sure Elizabeth liked it. I got a feeling Zechariah was a little bit of a jabber. I don't know. But then they, see, they say they have seen a vision. They realize it. they don't appear to question that he's seen a vision. It's kind of cool. The text just says, yeah, he did. I don't know if it was like Moses where he glowed a little bit, radioactive. Uh, Was it because of their trust in the character of Zechariah or their theology that allows visions? Maybe a little bit of both. But as we sum this up, that last line there in verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me. Elizabeth clearly believes that the gift of her child was brought by God. In our lives, different times, things come. And how do we look at them? Is it a coincidence? Elizabeth's going to say, well, what a coincidence. You, had, you thought you saw a vision, and then we get a kid. No. And you know when it happens, when it's real. And people can say that they don't believe you, and say that you know your faith is based on wishing on something that you're not sure of, but what you want to get to is knowing that main thing, that no matter what, that my connection with Yahweh is real through the power of the Spirit and because of what Jesus did. That's really what this is all about. And, and Elizabeth had that, didn't she? She clearly believed that this gift was directly brought to her by God, and we can learn from her faith. Let us pray. Fathers, we look at these divine beings that you still use that we're not to worship, but to, I guess, be in awe of in some way and be thankful for. You use them in the way you want, and we always should remember that. But we just thank you for these wonderful accounts that give us an eye into this heavenly realm. May we, like these divine beings, these sons of God, these holy ones, bow down before you with our hearts, always knowing that you are sovereign, and it's only through you that we have what we need, and only through you that we have eternal life. May we always remember that this Christmas.